Welcome to The Truth in This Art, your source for conversations on arts and culture. I'm your host, Rob Lee, and I am delighted to have my next guest, a creative writer and poet turned economic developer, and he is the new uh, president and CEO of the Greater Baltimore Committee. Uh, he's had more than over two decades of experience leading economic development strategies and uh, public-private partnerships in some of the nation's largest metropolitan areas. Please welcome Mark Anthony Thomas. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Happy to have you on. So it's it's, it's M.A., right? It's just, Mark just call me Mark. Huh? I mean, I got to go with the full thing, though. You know? <laughs> I go by Rob Lee, but you know, that's not really my name. Not yeah. too many people know that. It's funny, depending on where people know me in my life, um, if I'm back in Georgia, everybody calls me Mark Anthony. Mm-hmm. But I would say since like 2006, I'm just Mark. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I just feel like, you know, you're going to do some singing. It's going to be Spanish. No. <laughs> That's Mark with the C, right? Yeah. So in, in starting off, um, as the, as I get out my um, my opening bit, right, because yeah. everything, is, everything is a bit for me. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Could you tell us about your background and, you know, some of your early creative experiences? You know, I, I see that you're a creative writer, poet, turned economic developer. So yeah. let's 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 talk about that a little bit. So a lot of people now know economic development. Yeah. If you were 18, 17, 20 years ago, there wasn't like a field where you actually studied the work and you wanted to. Right. Sure. And so I love cities. I love people. I love just the culture of like us. Right. And I use writing to tell those stories. Mm. And so it was poetry. It was journalism. And I found over my early life is that it started to resonate with people where people wanted ideas and they wanted yeah. my thoughts on what would make this neighborhood better yeah. or this poverty situation better right and so that morphed literally over 20 plus years to a career first in media and communications into a civic role Mm -hmm. and then 10 years in the civic sector now i'm the head of the greater baltimore committee so let, let's let's put in there storyteller because that's a that's a piece of it as well. Yeah. It's important. Yeah, yeah, especially when you have to learn. First, you have to learn how to tell your own story. Mm-hmm. You have to learn how to tell stories of other people. And and that's the thing that I relate to in doing this, right? Yeah. And you know, regardless of all of the yucks I go for here and uh, trying to have like a really interesting conversation, I always feel really gracious that I'm able to speak with folks and. You know, I don't call really call myself a storyteller. I think I facilitate and help people share their story. Yeah. And, you know, it's a little contrivance and all of that stuff. There's a framework here, but I try to facilitate that. So definitely, you know, it's, it's important. You're right that if you're able to tell your own story, I've gotten a lot better at telling my story. Yeah. And I think it comes from doing these interviews and helping folks tell their story. Yeah. I kind of done it the backwards way, I suppose. It also takes time to learn how to tell the story of you being a storyteller. Mm. Right, and I think I learned that in my teenage years, yeah. when I was trying to go to college and apply for scholarships. Yeah. I remember writing essays and then attaching poetry yeah. to the essays, nice, <laughs> um, in hopes that like something would pop so I could actually go to college. Right, yeah. and so you don't forget those experiences; you just grow from them. Right, it's, it's almost a version of like trying to go viral. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's like, like let me attach this then. here. Yeah, <laughs> so. Speak on a bit, if you will, um, some of your earliest experiences with like art, creativity, writing, because this, you know, truth in his art, right? And 
but and, and how did they like inspire you during this sort of creative like journey? Because okay. you know, there's these really early moments. Like some people will say, Hey, when I grew up, I remember we lived near this mural, yeah. right? And it inspired me to seek out this artist. And then I they became a mentor and that's a through line, that's a starting point for them. So for you, what does that look like for you? Yeah, so I grew up in Atlanta and I mean obviously when people say Atlanta, it's like the whole metro, right? So I grew up in what is DeKalb County, yeah. um, very middle-class black area. Uh, a lot of culture that you see people debating now. Well, I met Maya Angelou when I was 10, <laughs> right? Like you just don't get that opportunity unless you're in certain places. Yeah. And, and so that was inspirational. Mm. Um, and, and getting exposed to like, okay, there are black storytellers and black journalists who excite me and what they do, right? Yeah. And so I was, I've been writing since I was like 14, 15. Um, and it started with um, literally poetry. Yeah. And I noticed something where my English teachers started to interact with me differently when they realized I had a gift. Mm. Yeah, and then I grew up, if you're familiar with like the Southern churches, my family was Church of God in Christ, which is like the most conservative of <laughs> of the, the the church community, but in that environment, I was told I was favored. Like yeah. I have this talent that you actually need to invest in it. Yeah, and in the pure vein of that, if you don't invest in it, like you won't receive the blessings you need, right? Right. And so that meant I had to actually become a better writer, yeah. right? And so that morphed into literally being a student journalist mm. and learning how to do reporting and learning how to analyze issues and learning how to communicate those issues broadly to a lot of people. Yeah. And so all of that, in my mind, laid like the framework for me to just continue to build. Yeah. Um, and when you're, if you come from a humble background, you don't have any entitlement. Sure. Like Absolutely. you're literally willing to work for whatever you believe you deserve. Yeah. And that was my upbringing. So I've always been like a hard worker and never assumed that I was guaranteed anything just because I was like in a certain place or had achieved a certain thing. I hear that. Yeah. I, I, I definitely relate. Um, and I think that's that's a big piece of the culture that's here in Baltimore. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, eh, we're, we're going to try to over deliver. We're going to try to just give extra because we're inclined to work hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. Please. Yeah. And I want to ask, so if a lot of people, their passions start as a teenager, or I may start in their twenties. Yeah. For me, it started young, but then it really started to pick up in my like young adulthood. Yeah, and so I went to University of Georgia, um, became a student journalist at the college newspaper there, and that's when like this is like the nineties. So college radio, record stores, <laughs> college papers. People don't realize how much that was part of like culture, right? Yeah. Um, and so I became Georgia's first black editor for the newspaper. Nice. And I was alpha. I was like brother of the year fraternity. So everybody knew me and people were reading my writing when I was like 19, 20, yeah. more broadly than like my church and like the Atlanta community. Um, but when I was graduating, I actually was more fascinated with technology intersecting yeah. with media and creativity. Yeah. And you couldn't really study journalism with anything digital unless you were – doing like TV production. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I wanted to actually go the corporate communications route because I thought I could actually use technology and computers and presentations and like all things tied to communication. Yeah. And so that ended up being my career route. At the same time, I started publishing poetry books. Yeah. yeah. And so it gave me a lot of just fulfillment and everything that I wanted to like say and do. 
Um, and that was part of my like story. Thank you. Yeah. That, that's the, here's the thing. Here's the thing. You're, you're, you're an overachiever. I don't, I don't like it. I don't like the overachiever thing because now you're just knocking out my questions like they're just, just pushovers. You've, you've answered like three questions already. <laughs> so, so shout out to you, but also it's making me feel like I need to revise my revised questions now. <laughs> um, so, you know, having having that, what, what were, you know, when you're looking for sort of that entry point of blending this creative satisfaction yeah. with sort of this career pursuit and then eventually leading into this sort of like shift to like what we call economic development. Yeah. Um, so, so talk about that and talk about some of those sort of like highlights on that that was satisfying you in both spots, like from a career, like from a creative standpoint and from a professional standpoint. And, and I, I say that and I ask that because sort of me podcasting yeah. came out of that. You know, this whole idea of I was like 24 yeah. in my first job out of college. And I was like, I am depressed. I'm not able to do anything <laughs> creative. And I took a marketing job, but it was a marketing um, analyst job. Okay. Thinking I could flex some of those creative muscles. It's like, no, get to that spreadsheet. So I was able to eventually combine the two. And I think that there's a moment that when we're creative, we're, we're looking at both. Yeah. So I, so I would say, so when I was in Atlanta, and this is in my early 20s, I actually skewed more creative than I wanted to be. Okay. Where by the time I released my second book, I was on literally all the radio stations, like very visible. Yeah. I would get commissioned to do poems. Um, and so my identity felt more driven as an artist than I wanted. Mm-hmm. And I felt like they had, I had this serious side that I needed to further explore. Right. And so I had this moment where I'm like, I need to leave the South. Like, there's no way for me to kind of reinvent mm-hmm. myself the way I want unless I go to another market yeah. and really push myself. And so I ended up going to New York City, uh, went to grad school at Columbia um, and studied policy. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so that's when I learned, like, okay, I can truly deploy my creative writing mm. to tell stories, yeah. to really understand policy, to understand issues that are of interest to me. And so I was fascinated with stuff like the drug trade. Because yeah. it was like 20 years of the war on drugs, right? Yeah. And so I was doing a lot of just writing in school on those types of issues. And ended up landing a job at what was a think tank in a magazine yeah. called City Limits um, in the Center for the Urban Future in New York. Yeah. Covered all things New York City, communities, economic development. And I was their deputy director. Wow. And so I developed a business plan to spin our magazine yeah. off and then became their publisher. <laughs> and so by the time I turned 30, I literally was like, I get to be this creative person in New York City reinventing yeah. media for like digital audiences and mobile <laughs> audiences and finding all these innovative ways to get this message out on policy. That is a, a hell of a rebrand right there. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. And so it was the most fulfilling moment I've had as like a policy person meets creativity. Yeah. I love that. And there was something about like having elected officials, activists, business leaders all following the work. Yeah. Yeah, because that meant like you're nonpartisan in a trusted way, right? Mm-hmm. And 
you're telling stories that at the time social media was still evolving and being in New York with all the players who were shaping that. Yeah. It was cool to be leading like the nonprofit investigative journalism version of what was really morphing into like the next phase of media. To to be able to be in a sort of that position to be able to talk to folks from various walks yeah. of life. Like what would you say you can attribute that ability to? Because I, I think about it from this, you know, standpoint. This is the thing I spend a lot of my time doing. Yeah. You know, folks will say, how are you able to interview this person and then interview that person like almost back to back? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just curious. Right. So but I, I think being able to have a good conversation with people from various walks of life, not everyone's able to do that yeah. and actually influence them to kind of like. You know what? We're on your side, or hey, we support what you're doing, or hey, you know what? Let's let's make this happen. What sort of what sort of skills or sort of like traits do you you know you think you have, or that you have that allows you to be so successful at that? Yeah, I think it, I think it does root back to being a poet. Mm. Um, if you're 16 and you're asked to speak at the funeral and write a poem, mm. you have to really put yourself in that person's environment to understand that. Yeah. And so I've written about everything from like jazz to like people who are going through weddings <laughs> and, and like it, it it tapped into a side of me that you don't really lose. Yeah. Yeah. And then you actually think of the like performance aspect of it or book signings. Like people come to you and they tell you their whole story because in some way as this writer or this audio artist yeah. who's being vulnerable with the world, people feel they can be vulnerable with you. Right, sense. And so I felt like I had built this connection with humans that just empowered me in ways that influenced my career. I hear you. Yeah. That's so cool. I, I love – if there's anything I'm most proud of in my life is being able to tap into that. I need, I need to steal a little bit. I need, we, we need to hang out. I need to learn some more because uh, – um, so – so one, I want to say congratulations. Thank you. You know for um, all all that you do, but also let's let's talk about this the the recent news and um, yeah. you know Greater Baltimore Committee. So what is it? Because I think a lot of folks don't have a sense of what it is. And you know, I started looking up. I was like, this makes sense to me, but I want to hear it from you. Yeah, and I'll actually step out a little bit, please, because the academic side of me. So it's about ten years ago. I studied how has business influenced innovation. And the kind of world order, frankly. Yeah. And you see from early creation of U.S. cities, yeah. whether they were creating trade routes or strategies on growing new industries or how the federal government managed corporations where they were being created, business and foundations and private sector entities have always had this role in shaping what that looks like. Right. And... You fast forward to 1955 when Baltimore was um, in a challenging moment then, the business leaders felt they needed to create a version of yeah. what you started to see across the world. Got it. Um, what really inspired them was in Pittsburgh, they had a similar model where the foundations, businesses came together to clean up the air and clean up the environment and said, okay, this is not going to solve itself unless we get in, involved. And so when they created the Greater Baltimore Committee, that was the purpose of, like, how do we support economic growth, arts, culture, really move this region forward yeah. in the right way. And it was – at least how I've interpreted it is it was the best of intentions, right? Yeah. Um, 
And so when you fast forward now 70, almost 70 years, when this opportunity opened up, my first thought was I haven't seen the scale of business leadership in Baltimore when you look at what this place has been through in the last decade. And I'm pretty comfortable in Pittsburgh. I have a great job at the time, right? And I've worked in a number of cities. In my mind, I was like, I don't want to do this yeah. Again, <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> I was like, because like, you don't think on a map like Baltimore is going to call me and say, "Hey, there's an opportunity for you here." And so I'm like, I can't imagine where else I would go that I would be fascinated to kind of rewrite kind of what the civic role would be for that place. Right. Not Chicago, not Philly, not any other place. But when this opportunity opened up, and I thought about what GBC was created to do, yeah, I'm like, oh my god, this would be amazing. <laughs> and I, it, it took me. Not a lot of time, but a moment to really just pause and say, if I can change this, this is legacy building stuff, right? This helps our communities. This helps the world learn from places that have have been through, like, the most challenging things. And if I can do that, that would be worth living for. I like that. Yeah, so that's how I ended up at GBC. And that's really the purpose of what GBC is set up to do, is really bring private sector leaders together, businesses, universities, nonprofits, and set a table for us to make an impact that only happens when you bring that kind of power together. I love that. And um, as, a, as a note, since since you're here in Baltimore and you mentioned Pittsburgh, you know there's a little bit of a conflict now. I do. And we, I would be we, we honest. We took you from Pittsburgh. I, you know, I'll just say that, <laughs> you know, for those towel flight, uh, waivers out there. It's funny because I – I didn't think that much about the rivalry (laughs) until it was announced. And I was like, wait a minute. Okay, there was actually not a lot of love from a sports angle (laughs) between both markets. I will say, though, and this is what I tell people in Pittsburgh, people in Baltimore have a lot of um, respect for what has happened in Pittsburgh as far Mm -hmm. as, like, the resurgence here. Um, But in coming here, it was a – to me, this is, like, mission-driven work. And I've always said, like, you go where you feel like you need to be, where you can have the biggest impact. And I couldn't see a greater impact beyond here. So in in having that history there and seeing it as sort of this this legacy component here, like, what's – What's on the docket for you? Like, what are what are your sort of like key priorities like coming up? Like, that you're like, I want to focus in this area, or in, like, how does that like look for you? Because I know, and I've I've seen it in different places where when folks come in, they're coming they're coming in almost like uh, Reggie Hammond, yeah. right? And it's like it's a new sheriff in town and <laughs> all of this. And there are some people who take I think a more measured and sort of correct approach of doing the listening tour, getting a sort of sense of what's here, what's yeah. the lay of the land here. So talk about that in terms of, you know, your vision, your your goals, and like how you want to approach that. Yeah, so I, there, there's things I personally would feel good about 10 years from now if we solve, right? Yeah. And at the top of that list is the blight in communities and our public safety issues, yes. right? And so... To me, we could grow the economy. We could double the amount of people who live here. We could have literally all the economic growth. If those two things aren't solved, I wouldn't. I could have just stayed in New York, yeah. right? Like to me, that's how I think about it. Yeah. And, and so, what that means is I need to orient the organization to do the hardest things, which are those issues, right? Because if they weren't hard, we wouldn't have up to seventy thousand 
vacant mm-hmm. or blighted properties in our city. Right. And, and so that's what I need to orient the GBC and our board and get people bought into the vision that we need to take on those scale of things. And only in the markets where you see people functioning that way have they solved these kind of problems. Yeah. And you don't do it alone if you're the mayor. You don't do it alone if you're like government. And, and really seeing that vision is important. It, and, and I, I want to interject real quick with this piece. So in, in sharing sort of like that vision, like does, it go, does that go back to the poetry as well of this is how I get this over? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I, I think if we, don't, if, I don't, if we don't sell people on a broader vision for what the GBC can be, yeah. then people just view us as another nonprofit yeah. or another civic organization that's trying to make an impact that you can't measure. And that's not what this region deserves. Right. Um, and also the competitive environment, I think, post-COVID, where people can pretty much move wherever they want. Um, and there are southern cities that are literally just kind of <laughs> almost like calling people to say, come. Well. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so it's a different reality if we want to see success here. Yeah. And so I need to make sure the GBC does the right work to make sure that we're educating the public that to solve X problem, this is what we need to do. And I think that. And, and thank you, because I think that also has like a big impact as what I was sharing with you before we got started um, with, you know, just some of the thinking of, well, you know, maybe Trump was right, you know, about about the city or about the, the different things that are there. And there's almost these going back to the sort of blighted houses and those sort of like condemned and empty yeah. houses. You're seeing things that tangibly are right there that are like, hmm, I know he's not right, but also I do see this. Yeah. Also, you know, from my vantage point, like I live in East Baltimore. Okay. And I'm I'm one of those, I'll take the walk. I'll walk from where I'm at to like Canton, right? And it's probably about a 30, 35 minute walk. And you see some neighborhoods that are really tight and they're developing new properties and all of that good stuff. And then you see other ones that are kind of like not, not getting that sort of same treatment. Yeah. And, you know, it's almost like You'll see like the trash blowing by, almost have the tear coming down or whatever. And it's almost this sense of, I think some people feeling like, hey, we don't deserve better because we don't see better. Yeah. And I think the, my sense is though, people can leave if Mm -hmm. they can, right? And so when I think of my own upbringing, uh, you hear the term um, crowded homes, like I saw term I learned a lot when I was in California, where it was like more than one family is in like a house, right? And so there was a point where they may have been like four of my mom's siblings and all of us were in like a big crowd at home because people were migrating to Georgia. Now they all have houses. Like they've actually made the trajectory up the ladder, right? But there is a point where it's like, look, we're all in this together and it was riskier for us to stay where we were than to all leave and move somewhere else. And I feel like for a lot of our cities where the poverty has been as entrenched as it is, where you're seeing that population decline, you're seeing new blighted houses being added, Mm -hmm. people are moving away, right? And and I think we don't have any choice at this point but to really tackle the environment that's created the conditions that we see. Or else we can't can't grow our region with a hobbled out um, core. Because it's almost on a, you could have all of these great ideas and, you know, act on some of these things. But yeah. if it's on like a shaky foundation, yeah, it's like, like and, and I like that, like this is the hardest part. <laughs> yeah, it's the hardest part. And the point of having, in my mind, 
the power of hundreds of organizations and business leaders and the partnership with the public sector yeah. is to do the hard stuff. And it means we, you know, we'll, we'll, there will definitely be economic opportunities and other things that we'll pursue. But yeah. when you're setting a table for a long-term impact, you want to address those big things. And I, I saw that done well in New York yeah. um, and Atlanta. I mean, for you, when you think about just the culture there, there's a reason why Atlanta and Birmingham are not the same city. Because they were, <laughs> right. frankly, like when, the, when GBC was founded, they were roughly around the same size. Wow. Yeah. I don't, it's, it's interesting having sort of those comparisons, right? Like, yeah. you know, I it was in New Orleans not long ago. Yeah. And really like New Orleans. And New Orleans has like population is like half the size of Baltimore. Yeah. And it's not deemed as a small city. Uh-uh. But Baltimore is kind of looked at as a small city. Yeah. But when you think about it, population doesn't dictate how we in culture think about places, right? Yeah. Like San Jose is larger than San Francisco, but no right. one thinks about. <laughs> it's like, know, what's this way? little tiny place called San Jose? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so there's small cities that punch above their weight. And New Orleans is definitely one of them as mm-hmm. far as culture and the influence they have. Um and I think you'll see the rise of new versions of that. Who would have thought Austin, which was a, really a college town when I was in college, right? <laughs> like it was like a bigger college town. Like now it's one of the most important cities in the world, right? Yeah, yeah. And so this shows you how competitive and how things can change. Baltimore. What I did love about the opportunity coming here is that it's such a historically important place. Yeah, and it's still within our consciousness, even if it's for the stuff we don't want. But it is a city that is like. In our minds, no matter what, and and that's the that's one of the things that I try to get over in any traveling that I do for yeah. representing in a sort of ambassador sort of way. Like I've been to Austin, so that's you know yeah. for this podcast, or even when you know the opportunity presents itself, there's a mic, there's an interviewer or something. They're like, so tell me about Baltimore. And it's like it's not what you've heard. Yeah, and. Um, we have a lot of history, as you, as you touched on. It's it's a very old city, yeah. So it's going to have history there, and I think it's you know irresponsible for folks just to say this one thing. It's the wire. It's this. It's that. And I think some of the stuff that that you're describing kind of helps shift that that conversation and narrative. Yeah, and I think it's important for us to own our story. Yeah, yeah, and in the absence of that, you're only defined how pop culture wants to define you. Yeah. Um, for better or worse, that's that's sort of the export. Yeah, it's like, oh yeah, you know, you're gonna like if you know, and going back to the, the New Orleans comparison because I, I I think there's something there where you hear about music, right? Yeah, you hear about jazz, you hear about these this different stuff, and then you have you know a, a lot of richness that comes out of some of the stereotypes, some of the um, pop culture sort of exports. Whereas here, it's just that one thing, yeah, a very good show, thing. but just one thing. Yeah. And it's much more there. And I think when kind of everything gets aligned, and that's what it sounds like, you know, that's part of the sort of vision of bringing community together, whether it be from public sector, whether it be businesses, community, yeah. all of that to come together to kind of help shift it through GBC. Yeah. And I don't, I will say this, when I think about what civic organizations were 25 years ago. Yeah. Um, and I shared this with uh, members of the selection committee who weren't all board members. It was like a group that was brought together to find me um, and vet other candidates. But Atlanta embarked on a brand campaign in 2005 that flopped. 
and it was so clear to me through that process was we're not embracing the hip hop side of who we are. Yeah. And like Dallas Austin did a song and then they had it remixed by the symphony to make it less hip hop. So all these elements mm-hmm. of like, we're, we're not trying to be authentic. And I think over time you've seen them embrace that authenticity. Yeah. And as the country is getting more diverse, you know, we all see where the demographics are heading. Yeah. Like Baltimore should be one of the greatest cities in the next hundred years, but we have to position ourselves for that. And 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 I like that. Thank you. And and I like that comparison of the Atlanta um, scenario there because, you know, there are there are instances where. I've done interviews, I've had conversations with folks outside of, you know, the actual pod and, you know, some of the the feedback that they get, like, really like your work. Can you take some of the black stuff out of it, though? (laughs) And it's like, do you know the demographics of the city? You know what I mean? And so, you know, talk talk about that a bit, like in in terms of the forefront from a racial component. Yeah, I would say. So this is my view for places that are pretending that the growth is not diverse, they're not going to thrive. Yep. Yeah. And, and and so this is a reality of that coming from Pittsburgh. So Pittsburgh as a region is the whitest region in the country. And the job I had there, I was the president of the Pittsburgh Regional Alliance. So I was in charge of attracting investment and people to the 10 counties, nine which were rural. And <laughs> the data sometimes that people would see would show such a lack of diversity that you would just immediately eliminate it from being yeah. like consider for investments that made sense from us from an economic standpoint. Or people would come and they just wouldn't see any glimpse of like, can I hire a thousand people who help us meet the goals we're trying to pursue to diversify our company? Yeah. And it's like, we can't deliver that, right? Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so you look at the broader... Maryland down to Virginia, we actually have a lot of diversity. Mm -hmm. Baltimore hasn't, in my mind, sent that message to the world that, hey, entrepreneur in Mm -hmm. Cape Town, there's an opportunity for you in Baltimore, right? Like, you think about all the different migration patterns and business and talent and, and companies and industrial development. Like, we've had a pretty underwhelming message. And that's the part that the GBC, with acquiring now, through a merger, the Economic Alliance, I want to re-establish what that looks like. Like this. Yeah. And so, I'm going to say I'm kind of more from like, there's a reason why I say I went from like a poet creative to an economic developer. Yeah. Because people will really see how that will, will feed into something I'm deeply passionate about now. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love that. Yeah. It's, you know, just, you know, having that sort of shift, like, again, it's, I think, you know, for folks who aren't like embedded and deep in it, yeah, they go by kind of what they see, and it's just like, oh, yeah, we're not really showing like sort of the diversity <laughs> that's in a place that has a certain the demographics that that are what they are, yeah. And it's like, all right, come on, guys, let's can we sort this out? Can we tighten this up from a and I, and I don't know what it looks like, but from a very um, a city PR perspective, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 almost. And you hear a lot about, like, you can't just tell yourself you have assets. Mm-hmm. And I, I hear a lot of that. You hear a lot of that across the country where they're like, oh, we should be great. Like, there is no, remember I was saying there's no entitlement right. in my background? That will play out in how I'm going to lead the GBC. Like, we have to fight hard for everything that we want to 
pursue. Yeah. And if I want to set a stage where we bring an investment and jobs and growth, like I'm going to fight as if <laughs> we put every effort toward making that happen. Because that's what these communities need and deserve. Yeah. And that's the batting range that we're in. So I got I got three more real questions. Sure. Yeah. And then I got those rapid fire questions for okay. you. You're not escaping them. No, that's cool. Um, so what would you say is like your guess that that trait that you just and I, and I think it's the relatability thing that you were touching on earlier yeah um but what is that trait that you know you bring to leadership because you've been in multiple ones as I'm learning through this conversation um that that that, that those traits that just make you like just just out there just super like successful relatable like what are those traits it just comes from that sort of upbringing that you know the lack of entitlement thing does it come from just Having sort of this storytelling ability and having sort of this background and creativity and, you know, and being able to shift that into this really strong career I'm hearing. Yeah, you know what it is? I think when I was on the path to leadership, because I don't think anybody coincidentally ends up as a CEO or, or any leadership role, right? So you have to be on a path. Yeah. I thought about what type of leader I wanted to be. And I wanted to be this relatable person yeah. that is fairly humble. Um that literally my whole story has been documented through my own writing, mm -hmm. right? And, and so I, I want people to feel like they can connect to me on a human level. Yeah. Um, but then I want to be as good as one can be in the profession I have chosen to be in. And, and so and what that looks like is, you know, I can do foreign direct investment. <laughs> we can talk industrial development. Yeah. We can talk policy at every level and the impact it's going to have on us short term or long term. So I, I obsess over really trying to understand the how to be good at what I need to lead. And I think what people are going to see is just that aggression in how I shape the GBC. Like I have no desire for us to be second fiddle to any other civic organization in the world. And a lot of that too comes from my time in New York. So one of the things I led when I worked for New York City is Economic Development Corporation yeah. was their foreign direct investment. And so you imagine who would visit New York City on an annual basis, like leaders of almost yeah. every international um, business investment organization, a branding group. Yeah. I've met prime ministers. Like you just, I met Boris Johnson. Like you just meet all these <laughs> random people. And it gives you such a global perspective on yeah. how New York has managed to be so important for the world. But then you don't lose that. And Baltimore deserves nothing less than that. Right. And so our makeup may be different where if we know, say, the continent's going to double in size, that means all the entrepreneurs are looking for American expansions. We'll look at markets here. Yeah. How do we even position ourselves for that growth, right? So it is all about finding growth where it is yeah. and ensuring that our, our branding, our message, our relatability is making that connection. Talk that talk, man. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, so let's see. Um, so, and, and, and I definitely think this is a kind of a good follow up to that. Um, I've read that mastering the smaller details um, helps us with our confidence and when we inevitably run into those roadblocks. Yeah. Do you agree with this? And how do you strengthen your confidence? Because it can't all be wins, you know? Yeah, no, I think you have to learn that when I think about it, you don't get everything you want. Mm -hmm. uh, when I think about the policy work I've done, that you push for, you kind of get like 70% of it. Yeah, and so it's more of learning to be happy 
it's almost like you want to be ambitious in the vision mm-hmm. so you can get to some place of happiness with kind of how things pan out. Yeah. Um, and that's been my approach. The yeah. other thing is, too, the world we inherit has a lot of challenges and mm-hmm. a lot of issues um, and a lot of just inequitable decisions that have been made in our lifetime, right? Yeah. And so you, where my mortality comes in is, like, I want to do as much as I can do during the time I'm on Earth <laughs> yeah. and leave, like, the next generation a playbook to community build from. That's actually probably one of the best answers I got to that question. Um, actually, that's kind of the last real question. Okay. Yeah. See, see, see. Again, again. Just, just throwing my questions. It's just like we're in a sparring class. You're blocking that one, blocking that one, slapping yeah. that one down. Um, so, I, w- I want to hit you with these these five rapid fire questions. Okay. Uh, they're all over the place. Yeah, that's fine. Just so you know. Um, how often are you writing these days? Not that. Not as much. Um, I did this project last year that was a short film that um, came from the COVID experience. You know what it was? Like a lot of people, I lost people during COVID, right? And I, I felt like I had buried that creative side of me where I was connecting with humans to the poetry. Yeah. But I was going through this catalog of writing, and I'm like, I actually have like 15 years worth of stuff yeah. that I just said no one has read. And so I, I wanted – have you seen Aretha Franklin's um, Amazing Grace? Yeah, yeah. So I, I was inspired by that where it captured her one night or two nights performing. And I was like, I want like one night. And, and I chose um, – it's like the Apollo of Pittsburgh. It's called yeah. the Kelly Strayhorn Theater. And so I performed like 15 years worth of my narrative. Wow. Um, and it's free. It's online. And I wanted like people to see it and be inspired. And one of the poems is a letter to my nephew. Yeah. Uh, my nephew, like, got shot. He survived, but he's he toys with the same gun violence issues that we deal with in this community. And so it was my way to say, like, you're too valuable for us to lose you, right? And so for him to see that and then say, you have me all in my feelings, I need to do better, made the entire year of working on that worth it. Yeah. But... Just things like that have reminded me that, like, I can't just bury the talent, even if it's occasionally on the back burner. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's this thing. Um, I think it's like an atrophy thing that happens where when we kind of close off that, that talent area that we're just yeah. really into, you just feel like phantom limb syndrome. I am stealing that from someone. I'm stealing yeah. that from Austin Cleon. But you feel sort of that phantom limb thing. It's like, I got to tap back into that. Yeah, and it felt really good. I think for the crowd, like you were seeing the film, like it's, people throughout Pittsburgh came. It was like a sold-out event. Um, but they clearly knew it was a special moment for me and a special moment for them. Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, it was like stepping back into like the thing that had given me, as I've described it, as my lifeline out of poverty. Right. Yeah. Um, to show people like, no, this was a deeper part of me and the culture is a deeper part of all of us. And we may give you credit for it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so let's see. I have my thing. Um, what is your preferred um, writing tool? Do you, are you more of an analog person? Are you more of a digital person in those instances where you feel inspired? Uh, I'm, I say I'm analog. I have a ton of writing journals. I, I was I definitely yeah. that's one of the questions that's yeah. in here. Like how how many do you have? And yeah, probably you know. like fifty. And it was like a gift 
pattern for people. Yeah, yeah. But they give me like, <laughs> and I actually use them. So it's, that's generally where I write. Yeah, I, I have in that backpack right there, I have like four or five different notepads that just I jot down ideas. Okay. And it's I prefer that. I think you keep some of the imperfections in there. Yeah. I think when you do it on something like this, it's a little too polished and some of the thinking is lost. Yeah. You know what also? I've always wanted to have – I wanted to be clean in the different art forms that I toyed with, Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so with poetry, it's like if you put that in analog form, it feels like it's not the same as writing a speech or yes. writing like – uh, a column or something. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Like, this is in its place. <laughs> yeah, it's like in, in this moment and I'm in that zone. Because uh, I got three more. What's your favorite snack? Uh, probably Snickers. Okay. Yeah. So that's a great answer. I heard somebody yesterday uh, interviewed. He was like, yeah, like warm water. I was like, hold up. Really? Well, he's, he's like, I fast. So I was like, oh. I was like, all right. Yeah. Snickers is a great answer, actually. Yeah, it's not a lot of calories. Yeah. Um, let's see. If you could recommend one book that has had an influence and an impact on you um, professionally or creatively, what would it be? Can I say like uh, I have a lot of just I have like four hundred books. <laughs> <laughs> there are a few. <laughs> um, so on the poet side, yeah. and I buy like catalogs of people. I love like Langston Hughes, a guy named Kevin Young, yeah. who was a professor. He's a poet. Um, Ted Kuzer. Oh, I love his stuff. So I just buy catalogs of stuff. Yeah. And then on the academic side, I have a lot of autobiographies. Um, so obviously, like, Malcolm X, people like that. Like, yeah. Those were just, like, compelling. But, I mean, Wes Moore's is good. So I have, like, those stories. And I more recently bought a lot of policy books yeah. on cities and like inequities and how we do things better. And so I have this catalog of like a hundred plus books of just those kinds of things. I mean, I hear it. It's the, uh, you know, you're sharpening that saw. It's like you're, you're living it, yeah. you're breathing it, you're, you're, you're consuming it with, um, through, through books or what have you. And, you know, I'm, I'm hearing it. It sounds just, just great. Yeah. And then on the poetry side too, I love international books mm -hmm. that have been translated. Hmm. So I have, because there's something in universal in, how we experience life, right? And so I have books of like from Cuba and like just countries where the writing is like their outlet, right? Yeah. Um, the Middle East, um, like, yeah. So I'll buy a lot of translated poetry to understand how their emotions were articulated. That's good. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> I've, um, in, in going into kind of consuming more media that has sort of that that translation component to it. Like I was one of those guys that was really goofy. I wouldn't watch a movie that had subtitles or what have you. Cause I'm like, I'm missing all of the visuals. Yeah. That's what we're here for. And now in, you know, one of my favorite movies over like the last couple of years in that sort of vein of diving in and seeing the translation and kind of missing maybe parts of things, but kind of getting the context yeah. and the feeling of a scene, for instance, it's probably drive my car. Okay. I was just like, this is a long movie, but I feel like I'm a part of it, and it feels so good. <laughs> and I don't speak Japanese, and it's in like seven different languages, you yeah. know what I mean? And it's very interesting, but I might try that in a, that approach in books. Yeah, no, I think it works well with poetry because it's, you know, it's a finite amount of lines with right. an emotion, right? Yeah. So you're trying to understand kind of what were they feeling at that moment. Yeah. Um, on the film side, I love documentaries. That's my... Yeah, I love them. 
and and people will send me recommendations and things like that. I, I have four or five already on the top of my head right okay. now. We'll, we'll we'll talk afterwards. Um, this is the last one. This is the most weird one. Okay. Uh, if animals could talk, which one do you think would be the most annoying to listen to? Um, probably a cat. This is cat slander. Yeah, just because you never really understand what they're thinking. True. Yeah. True. Well, I have a dog, so like I feel like he would say exactly. Yeah, big dog, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but for cats, like, yeah, they just seem like they would just spew out random stuff. <laughs> I think that's that legit. would be like annoying, and you would probably put them in the like a clothes room or something. Uh, one hundred percent. As a person who has a cat, I may have done that. He's a very chatty cat. Yeah. I'm like, I'm glad you don't speak English or something or sound like a human because I don't know what I would do here. Um, so that's pretty much it for the podcast. Okay, what and, other questions? Can uh, we? So is this, did we run all the We've we we run all, all the questions. Okay. We've run the gamut. Um, so in these final moments, um, one, I want to thank you for coming on and making the time and, and showing up here in person. We're recording this at Big Improv. And um, I want to invite and encourage you to tell the folks anything that you want to share in the final moments here. It's kind of like this sort of shameless plug, plug part of the podcast. Yeah, no. So I'm, I'm so excited to be in Baltimore. Yeah. Uh, I thought a lot about what this decision would mean and saying yes to come here, right? Um, like you don't ever – your life changes mo- the moment you say I'm coming, yeah. meaning I'm here <laughs> – I'm going to be here, and that means this is my community now. Yeah. yeah. And so I want to make sure that the work I do and the resident I am of the city reflects kind of the best of both, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think people, I, I want to get to know folks and everything from, like, the restaurants to, like, the churches to, like, the volunteer groups to the business leaders who are kind of my natural base, yeah. right? So I want to feel, like, too, truly embedded in being here. Well, thank you. I think me on this podcast might be a part of that. Yeah, that too. Shame, shamelessly, <laughs> I just said, by the way. This is the shameless plug part of it. Um, so, again, um, if you if you have any website or social media where you want folks to check you out, um, you can throw that out there as well. Okay. Yeah, yeah check out uh, gbc.org, our website. Um, you can also just search my name. I'm on all the social media stuff. Um, but follow us. I think we're going to be doing some great stuff. And I want people to be part of, even if they're not members or partners, just be part of our audience because yeah. I want to really speak to everybody. And so I think that would be important to just start to get on the radar of what the GBC is doing. Yeah. Yeah. And there you have it, folks. I want to again thank Mark Anthony Thomas from Greater Baltimore Committee for coming on. And I'm Rob Lee saying that there is art, culture, community. And around your neck of the woods, you've just got to look for it. Yeah.